Welcome to a joint episode of the New Zealand Initiative podcast and the Centre for Independent Studies podcast. I'm Michael Johnston and I'm joined today by Glenn Fahey. He's kind of my opposite number at the Centre for Independent Studies. We're, we're both education researchers and we've also both very recently written uh, reports on teacher education in our respective countries and we thought it would be interesting to get together and compare notes. So welcome, Glenn, and perhaps for the New Zealand Initiative listeners, you could introduce yourself and the kind of work you do. Absolutely. Uh, Michael, very good to join you and to join our friends over in New Zealand as you know, many, many shared enthusiasms and interests here at the CIS and over in New Zealand. As you say, we do very similar work and I lead our program on education here at the Centre for Independent Studies. In many respects, it's similar to the kinds of work and, and areas of emphasis that you have and, and the initiative have. And I think we, we share a lot in common in that respect. I've, I've come to this area of work not as an educator, though, or, and not as a, as a scientist or an education scientist but as an economist interested in the fundamental problems uh, impacting human capital in Australia, I was a regional speaker who effectively proposed to us that our educational decline in Australia effectively was imposing a 6% tax on young people based on the underperformance of our school system. And that's really the motivation that I have in, in the work in education, the work that we lead day to day at the CIS and, and like you, uh, teacher uh, preparation is a critical part of getting that education policy piece right. Yeah, 6%. Six, six so that, that's effectively saying that's a deficit to GDP caused by a lack of quality education. All of the, the many levers or many contributors, if you like, toward our future economic growth, some of those are beyond our control. Many of those are, are international. Many of those are, are really structural. But the performance of our humans, the human capital of the economy, that's something directly in our control to, to harness. And it's so disappointing to see that poor policy over several decades has contributed to that underperformance and, and ultimately limiting the opportunities and prosperity of future generations of Australians. Yeah, well, I mean, from my perspective, I, I am an educator and, and a cognitive psychologist, so I've come at this kind of research from a different angle. But I must say, I've always appreciated the input of economists into education policy. When I first started as an education academic, I was quite taken aback by almost an aversion to quantitative research in education, and I couldn't understand why. And for a number of years, I noticed that a lot of the best quantitative research in education is done by economists. And it's, it's one of those things. And, you know, that's a whole different conversation about why education research is the way it is. But in any event, you and I have both recently written about teacher education. Now, maybe we'll, we'll briefly compare notes in terms of the conclusions that we came to about what the problems are. And I, I think we largely agree. I think there's a, a great deal of similarity between the Australian and New Zealand situations in, in respect of teacher education. And, and then we can move on to some, some of the solutions that we each came up with, which might be where we have some debate. So do you want to lead off with what the, the kinds of problems you found with the Australian system for educating teachers are? 
Yeah, it's certainly been an area of focus for policymakers for some time. Uh, so here in Australia, for at least a decade, policymakers have recognised that there is some degree of underperformance when it comes to teacher preparation. It's probably helpful for us when we're when we're speaking about this that we sort of define terms, if you like, that you know, generally when we're talking about this, we're talking about the initial teacher preparation program. In many cases, that's a, a three-year or four-year degree that the teachers might undertake after they've completed their high school qualification to enter the classroom, or if they're completing a, a two-year qualification, perhaps after already working for some time or after uh, picking up another qualification. In Australia, and, and I suspect in New Zealand, this is largely a university qualification, more more so than a, a vocational certification. Yeah, about 90% of New Zealand's teachers qualify at universities. And ours is very close to 100% currently. And that's that's largely because we've created a set of conditions that, that mean to be an accredited teacher, you must have been awarded a certification through a quite narrow set, which which applies really only to, to universities, more or less. What we try to deliver in initial teacher education in the very broadest sense is, is to give new teachers and the preparation that they need to, to learn how to teach, learn how to teach in a subject, and to learn how to be a teacher. So in each of those areas, learning to teach is really about a degree of pedagogical strategies that, that could be used in the classroom, ideally with some opportunity to practice those as well in, in a range of different classroom settings. Learning to teach a subject is in some cases learning a subject well, uh, but generally also applying those principles about pedagogy to the specifics of a subject area. And learning to become a teacher is really about the professional expectations, values, dispositions, mentoring and uh, and human relations involved with being an effective teacher. Over recent years, perhaps there's areas that we see, certainly in CIS at least, and I suspect in your work too, is an area that's been missing there when it comes to teacher preparation. And, and that's that we don't provide teachers with sufficient knowledge about why it is that certain practices might be more effective or less effective in the classroom. And in particular, what sort of scientific understanding and basis behind that helps to inform why those practices might be better or worse. I think, it, and unfortunately, it, it, that, that means that teachers... Sorry, I was just going to say, in New Zealand, in fact, I, I don't think they're actually presenting the teachers with the most effective practices, let alone giving them the research basis for what those might be. In fact, we, we did, as part of our report, and, and when I say we, I should acknowledge very much my co-author, Stephanie Martin, who is herself a, a practising primary school teacher and we trawled through all of the university courses that form part of the initial teacher education programs and did an analysis of their themes and content and we found a, a huge emphasis on social justice themed teaching and social constructivist teaching out of about 220 courses in total we found two that may have had something to do with the science of learning so that kind of skew was really really evident I don't know if that's the same in Australia. We've had similar findings here in Australia and, and successive reviews from, from government, uh, independent reviews and so on. Look, at one way we can assess whether programs are delivering what's intended is, is to look at whether the content in those is aligned with the science of learning. We did our own study on this and we looked at 90 courses in primary maths. That was across 31 universities. In that study, we saw that 27 out of those 31 were uniquely or, or only focused on, on what we would describe as 
uh, educationally progressive ideas, if you like, or focus on student-led learning approaches. And of the other four universities that we looked at, it was either ambiguous or there was a mixed approach when it comes to the kind of pedagogy and background knowledge that students were being equipped with. So that leads us to conclude that by and large, relatively few teachers are being exposed to the kind of strategies that are most likely to be effective and the scientific basis that underlies why those practices are most effective. Sounds like a little bit better in Australia than what we found, though. Well, it's it's still very marginal. So we're talking about here, most, most students that graduate universities will never hear about explicit teaching methods, and they'll more than likely never hear about the key components of a science of learning, right. uh, particularly as it applies to a subject that they might be teaching. Gee, and that, that's especially important in something like mathematics where the cognitive load is heavy, right? There, there, of all places, you'd expect to be learning that kind of structured teaching approach. Well, there's a range of practices that we expect, particularly math teachers, to be able to, to know and understand well through their qualification. Of course, you know, when it comes to those practices with breaking down complex units, this is this idea of being able to appreciate the significant cognitive load, particularly in mathematics, being able to break down complex units into smaller, easier to digest concepts and processes is clearly very important. Maintaining attention of students when we're dealing with mathematical problems, including word-based problems, is clearly very important. Uh, we need to be able to question and check for understanding in, in efficient ways that are quick and, and timely in a classroom. We need to be able to provide feedback to students that allows them as a whole class to be progressing as intended. We ought to have teachers prepared to provide worked examples to help provide content in a scaffolded way. We expect teachers to be able to deliver effective retrieval strategies, that is helping kids to, to recall existing knowledge when it comes to solving maths problems. So as you say, maths is a particularly important area where effective pedagogy is really crucial to student learning. Yeah. And if I might add, is, is the area in Australia where the, the most significant departures exist compared to evidence-based practice and what we're most likely to see in classrooms. Yes, I think it's probably the same here. And, and certainly there's been research in New Zealand showing that primary school teachers have pretty poor pedagogical content knowledge when it comes to mathematics. Early reading, I think, is another area that we've had particular lack in for a long time and, and a fairly misguided approach. So we both seem to have found some content problems with the courses that universities are using to educate new teachers. We also noted that there was largely insufficient time spent on practica in classrooms. Is that similar in Australia too? Unfortunately, that is a real perennial problem in the Australian school system. Unfortunately, the, we're complicated by a federal structure as well. And this is complicated because for us, our federal government effectively funds teaching places, but it's our states that accredit teachers. But then the placement of teachers into schools for practicum is governed basically by the university provider. Mm. The problem there is that no one's got clear incentives about how to deliver practicum effectively. And in fact, all of the, all the incentives lead us to a really inefficient system and one that's notoriously very ad hoc. Yep. Um, there are some examples of excellent practice in practicum, but we don't measure those in relevant ways. We don't provide clear guidance about which schools are best placed to host students. We don't have clear guides for mentors about how to be effective instructional leaders. We don't reward supervising teachers. Just recently, the government has proposed potentially 
providing pay for placement, if you like, which is something that, that's addressing a problem known as placement poverty. That's something we certainly do encourage. And this is because many teachers during their placement period will actually not be able to do any of their part-time work because they're both doing their, their study as part of their degree and also working in a school unpaid. And that leads to you know, significant problems for those teachers in, in terms of managing that workload and, and fully experiencing that practicum in the way that we intend. Yeah, I mean, we noted very similar things. Uh, one of the things about the teaching profession in New Zealand, and I think until recently it's been pretty similar in Australia, but I think the Australians may have done something about this. In New Zealand, teachers are paid purely according to time served. So they get a pay increment just for being a teacher for, for an extra year. Uh, there's no structure whereby they're paid more if they're more effective teachers. Uh, there's no kind of tears to the teaching profession. And this seems to me one of the problems with how teachers in training are mentored when they're on their practica in, in schools because an associate teacher, as they're known in New Zealand, they, these are the teachers who supervise practica, can have as little as two years classroom experience themselves. And as you said about Australia, I think that there are some outstanding associate teachers who do a great job, but there's no quality control on it. And in the end, most of the time, uh, the universities will be looking around for schools that are willing to host teachers in training, and then whichever teachers put up their hands and those schools will get a, a teacher in training in their classroom. Look, that, that's very similar in our arrangement too, unfortunately. And what it, what occurs then is that uh, placements are not really, uh, schools are not really encouraged to host placements. And placements, unfortunately, there is a feeling within the sector sometimes that placements are a real burden. It turns out that there's some good research in the US that actually shows that there is in fact no penalty to schools who host a large number of trainee teachers. So that, that, that was quite interesting to know because the feeling within the sector is that hosting placements will place additional pressure on, on the school's operation, but also might have a penalty for students. So it's very encouraging to see that the research actually suggests that that might not be the case. So again, we have a confluence of this problem of, of insufficient time and patchy quality of, of the practica that new teachers experience. What about the assessment of, of practica in Australia? I, I mean, here it's very rare for teachers in training to fail their practica. And critically, as far as I'm concerned, the, the staff from universities who are teaching the coursework have very little to do with that assessment. They might conduct some observations along the way, but in the end it's the, it's the associate teachers in the schools who are making the call. And unless somebody is truly hopeless, I think most of the time they, they get through. And I put that down to a lack of clear standards for what the teachers and training need to do and show that they're able to do in terms of assimilating good teaching practice in the classrooms. And a lot of the time, the associate teachers might not have been well-trained themselves, so you get this perpetuation and amplification of, of poor practice. Is that also an issue for you? Look, there's a real black box when it comes to evaluating the success of teachers altogether, but especially during that placement period. Unfortunately, uh, there we, we do have a program that's known as the Teaching Performance Assessments, which sounds very good in, in, in on paper and in, and in theory. And this is the idea that there is a robust system of expectations about what graduate teachers are able to, to do and, and demonstrate by the end of their qualification. But the problem, of course, with many of these attempted initiatives is that 
it really amounts to institutions really marking their own homework when it comes to this this yeah, question. Exactly. And the incentives really don't allow for universities or even a third party, if you like, to provide a degree of quality control when it comes to who's in fact passing those assessments. I think it would be greatly beneficial if we did have robust observations and, and supervisor ratings in a way that could be could be used to better monitor the success of initial teacher education programs and the practicum component. Right. So it seems that we have a, a very high degree of agreement about the problems in our respective systems for preparing new teachers for the classroom. Perhaps we'll, we'll turn to some of the policy recommendations we each made now. And I think here we came to somewhat different conclusions. I think for you, there was a focus on some fairly prescriptive change to what the universities are doing. Is that, is that right? So we have really a decade of attempted reform in this area, and that's attempted more or less, if you like, from a top-down approach from from government to say, university providers, please include X, Y, and Z if your program is to meet accreditation standards. A decade of work in that area proved effectively to have a sector that was completely non-responsive. And that's because, is that because they didn't have to respond? They were kind of being asked and they said no, or are they resisting actual legislative change? There's a real combination there. So providing a degree of guidelines with a soft soft nudge was not sufficient to create change in the, the product offering, in part because it's a very protected market in university teacher education. That is, there was no other provider really that could enter in and say, well, if, if these providers won't offer you X, Y, and Z, then this other part of the market could deliver it. And there's very little current likelihood to see a major change in the market structure. So setting that aside, the nudge approach isn't sufficient to deliver change. So then policymakers attempted to produce a requirement that at least a certain number of units included, if you like, science of reading instruction as part of it. Now, of course, what happened there is that because universities are self-accrediting and self-evaluating, universities will say to a regulator, yes, of course we do this. And many even today will say, Yes, of course we do this, even though research like our own has demonstrated that, well, there's very little evidence that that is the case. And and even graduate teachers will say, this is not the case. But university providers will say to a regulator, yes, we do this thing. So that's proven to be fairly ineffective. And and the sector has proven largely to be non-responsive to changes from the system. And that's when we focus, if you like, on, on more of the input side, that is, you know, what programs offer. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's no role for the government to play in steering reform. It does appear to to me that that will be necessary. It's, it's, it appears that providers will not of their own accord through incentives and the like improve practice or better align that with where expectations are for the sector. We do need to see, and we are seeing some original steps, we are seeing some steps in that direction, but we do need to see the sector from a government's perspective give clear indications about what is expected and then allow providers to benchmark their performance against those. A heavy top down in the short term to enable a long-term, more self-reinforcing approach. So how will that work, given the decade of failure to influence them so far and the operational autonomy of universities, what leverage will the federal government in Australia have to enforce its will, as it were? (laughs) Well, first, what what should they do? So state governments really do have the demand lever, if you like. So if universities control supply in terms of what they offer teachers, state departments are effectively the the monopoly employer, if you like, of teachers. Right. Now, if they said, we're not going to accredit teachers who have not undertaken 
programs that do X, Y, Z. In theory, overnight, state departments could exercise that lever. Now, they've not proven to want to do that, and it's probably not exactly the environment to do so when there are workforce shortages and the like. So instead, what we're looking for there is for, I guess, the, the market to be instructed to operate in a certain way from the federal government. And that's to provide it some steering principles about what should be included in initial teacher education. Why why do you think that will work this time when it didn't in the past? Well, here's the critical change that we have this time that we haven't had before. And that's that we now have what's called a teacher education expert panel, which is intended to provide a core content framework that universities would have to meet. And a moderating group would be there to ensure that universities are in fact meeting those standards. Now, that's not, you know, it might sound, you know, particularly for those of us more inclined to freer markets and smaller government, that might come against some of those sensitivities. But what we are doing here is is creating some structure for a market. So if we say that courses should include this core content, we can then ask providers, how well do they deliver that core content, inform the market, including the employer, that is the state departments, and then allow that market to work in a way that privileges those institutions that are best delivering graduate teachers against those standards that we we value as being core to effective teaching. I see. And, you know, from my perspective, I wouldn't be so averse to that kind of regulatory approach if I thought that it would work. And I, I guess my reservations are twofold. One, and you can tell me how this is in Australia, but in New Zealand, we have legislation within our Education and Training Act that guarantees universities academic freedom. And that includes choice for academics over the content that they put in their courses. So the government could change that legislation in order to enact some kind of regulation of the content of initial teacher education courses. But as far as I can see, they couldn't just directly do it. Perhaps Australian universities don't have that insulation from regulation? It's a much debated issue, in fact. In in some respects, does come up against the academic freedom question. I would push back on that a little bit and, and suggest that academic freedom very much applies toward the intellectual inquiry of the, the research function of the university. In terms of its teaching function, I would argue there's probably more of a, a grey area when it comes to preparing graduates for vocational-based qualifications. And, yeah. and we designate teacher education as one of those fields. And that has been used as, a, as an opportunity or by governments or in their interpretation to apply greater stringency about what's included in right. qualifications. I think I now, think the New Zealand legislation may be a little more explicit in protecting universities from interference as they would see it in uh, their courses and the content of their courses. That's probably right. But there's other areas in which you know, I'd love to see the sort of self-regulation that we see in other areas of professional certification. Yeah, Something like in accounting, you've got a, a chartered accounting program or a CPA program, for instance, that universities align their course content to meet agreed standards within the sector. Unfortunately, teacher education really has not found the, the ability to do that in a systematic way. In the future, it may well be possible. And that, that's, I think, something that teacher education providers must really think about seriously, whether those professional standards could be encoded better in, in a, a professional standards framework that would allow for that self-accreditation approach and self-regulation within the industry, rather than requiring this government interference 
if you like. But it does appear in the short term that we do need government to enter this market to, yeah. to correct some of the failures that, that, that have been there for some time. Yeah. In New Zealand, and, and, and again, tell me how it is in Australia, the standards for the teaching profession are administered by what we call the Teaching Council, which is a professional body which teachers register with and which is supposed to monitor their performance against these standards. The trouble is that the standards are incredibly vague and the assessment processes against them are very weak. And so in theory, we do have a self-regulating profession. But like you, it frustrates me that that doesn't seem to work the same way it does for accountants and doctors and lawyers and architects and so on. For some reason, the teaching profession has not taken a a particularly rigorous approach to self-monitoring and evaluation. Well, in part, it's resistant to that entirely, I, I suspect. And, and that, that, I mean, it, that really does come to a fundamental challenge that, that we have within the teaching profession entirely. And that's, that's this question about the idea of best practice, the idea about empirical research versus experiential research in education. Mm. We have this problem about the art or science of teaching. Because we have these fundamental contradictions, it does make it very difficult to establish those kind of standards as I see it. As far as our system goes and the institutional structure goes, notionally every state has its own professional standards that they accredit against. They're basically now all aligned with the federal professional standards for teachers. Unfortunately, it's a, it's an incredibly vague process and one that's defined very much by, if you like, professional behaviours and conduct more than it is about effective teaching. It really does very little to explicitly define effective teaching. Yep. And that is a real source of uh, confusion, I think, for, for graduate teachers. And an example that we see that communicates much more clearly to educators is the UK's early career framework, which does say directly to teachers, we believe students learn this way, and here's how you can demonstrate that in your classrooms. Yeah. In Australia, are those standards run by a professional body or, or are they legislated? Those standards are agreed to by all education ministers. And in effect, the consequence of that is that each state has chosen to align their accrediting authority or acquiring those accrediting authorities to align with the statutory body's articulation of those standards, if you like, right. and so, which have been agreed to by ministers. So they're a political thing rather than a professional thing. I think that's fair to say. It's certainly been established through a statutory authority that's responsible for delivering these and and have been agreed in accordance with the state-based accreditation bodies. Um, But ultimately, it is is ministers that approve it. So that that is different in New Zealand where it is the Teaching Council that does it and the Teaching Council has a majority of its members elected from the teaching profession. So the locus of control of those standards is different. That may have something to do with the different solutions that we lit upon. My recommendations and Stephanie's recommendations in our report were rather than establish political control over the teaching profession, which we saw as potentially being deprofessionalizing for teachers and also opening up the profession to undesirable political interference, we sought to establish competition for the registration of teachers, whereby there could be more than one professional body for registering teachers. At the moment, it's legislated that the Teaching Council is the only one and that the performance of each set of professional standards would be monitored and published. And that way, prospective teachers would be able to see which set of professional standards seem to make people the best teachers. And 
over time one would hope that they would gravitate towards the programs that prepared them to meet those standards. We recognise that this is not a quick fix but the objective is to professionalise the teaching force over time and, and we worried that establishing political control would interfere with that. I think there are some differences between our respective systems. Another thing you see in New Zealand is that the universities don't, while they are very dominant in that market, they they don't have uh, a complete monopoly. And there is one provider here in particular, which is an independent provider, that I think does a model job of preparing teachers for the classroom. And I'm talking about the New Zealand Graduate School of Education that's located in Christchurch. It's been operating now for about 30 years and it's a very different model whereby teachers and training are placed more or less full-time in classrooms where the teacher educators from the graduate school go into the classrooms very regularly and observe and coach and mentor. So the, the schools who host the teachers are not expected to do anything except provide opportunities to teach and those teacher educators from the graduate school also conduct very rigorous assessment whereby they have a long list of specific teaching behaviours that the teachers in training must demonstrate to the point of consistency and fluency. And when all of those criteria are met, they can graduate. And that to me is exactly what I would like to see replicated across the country. Now, in New Zealand, that's possible. And it may be that the regulatory framework in Australia makes setting up an independent provider more difficult. In a current framework, it's very difficult to do so, but it's something I think we need to really strongly encourage. It could be, for instance, institutes of teaching that that are set up around the country that partner with universities and schools in order to, to deliver training where teachers are embedded in a school more or less from day one. One challenge that, we, that we've got, and we've, we've already highlighted practicum to an extent, but one trouble we have is this professional isolation that teachers have got in the during their training, not feeling directly attached to a school. Uh, one, one approach could be that when we want to enroll new teachers, we could go through a, a different allocative program where we enroll in an institute of teaching, if you like, that places us with a local school to us. So we don't have to, uh, you know, if we don't want to, we don't need to change where we live in order to complete our qualification. We could receive that vocational training in a systematic way, similar to how you've described, and also still have that partnership with the university with our graduates effectively being steered through the partnership rather than through the university placement. And if our key unit of analysis there is the quality of the partnership, I think that might better establish those things that we really value here about preparing teachers for the realities of the classroom. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's been really good to talk to you about all of this, Glenn, and I think we've certainly lighted upon many of the same issues that need to be solved. And as you'd be aware, we've just had an election in New Zealand and we'll have a new government in due course. It takes a little bit of time to form a government in New Zealand because of the electoral system. There will have to be a a negotiation between parties to form a coalition or a partnership. And we'll have a new Minister of Education and she or he potentially may be able to get some clues from your report and mine about how to improve the quality of initial teacher education in this country. And I certainly wish you all the very best in influencing your politicians in your country. More the better when our politicians uh, listen to the wise counsel of think tanks like the CIS New Zealand Initiative. Michael, it's been a real pleasure to talk. Thanks, Glenn.